Hello, and welcome to the Project Good podcast. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Hilton. Project Good is a social impact podcast interviewing experts and advocates about the pressing problems that we face globally and hearing how we can move forward in the future. The Project Good podcast is brought to you by Project Good Work. The goal of this podcast is to inspire people and organizations to develop a mindset that can move others to positive action regarding the complex social issues facing people and the planet. For September, we're focusing on juvenile justice. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Jennifer Peck, an associate professor in the Department of Criminal Justice at the University of Central Florida. Dr. Peck's research interests focus on racial and ethnic disparities in the juvenile justice system, treatment of disadvantaged groups throughout the juvenile court processing, and special populations in courts and corrections. Dr. Peck's work focuses on a long-standing problem of social and racial inequity in the justice system and bringing them to the light for change. Let's get into the interview. First, let me introduce our guest, Dr. Jennifer Peck, who is an associate professor at the University of Central Florida in the Criminal Justice Department. Her recent publications appear in Justice Quarterly, Law and Human Behavior, Crime and Delinquency, and Race and Justice, an international journal. Dr. Peck is passionate about advocating for youth in the justice system by regularly revealing how young people are treated like adults instead of children going through the challenges of adolescence. Welcome, Dr. Peck. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Um, so before we jump into the questions, I always like to know what drove people to do what they do. So what drove you to study and focus about juvenile justice? Sure. So this was kind of a beginning when I was a master's student at the University of South Florida, um, earning my master's and later doctoral degree. And I took a graduate course on race and crime. And I had grown up um, in upstate New York in a very kind of homogeneous, uh, middle-class population and really was just introduced to this concept of race and crime in my graduate course. And at first, I was just amazed, but then also feeling pretty horrible about what was going on in our juvenile and criminal justice system because I had no idea about this while growing up. And so during my master's and doctoral studies, I had the opportunity to work with some wonderful mentors in the Department of Criminology at USF whose research was focusing on uh, racial ethnic uh, disparities in our juvenile justice system. And so from there, I was starting to learn about different types of community disadvantage, social inequalities, economic inequalities that all started to transfer into why we were seeing more racial and ethnic minority youth. Um, going through our juvenile justice system. So really, it, it kind of turned into this turning point for me. And instead of just graduating with my master's and going to work for the CIA or the FBI or, you know, a letter organization like that, that really I wanted to enact change by um, conducting research on these topics, but then also being able to teach uh, college students about some of these topics that I was never aware of until I was in graduate school. So it was a an opportunity to become a professor by being able to have that wonderful combination of teaching as well as conducting research and working with community partners to enact uh, hopefully some change and help decrease the presence of these disparities in our justice system. I guess just to get at the core, because as I was uh, preparing for this interview and, um, you know, I, I started to notice there's like uh, different levels of uh, where the justice system gets uh, involved and and also um, just, uh, I guess, how um, people uh, view juvenile justice issues. Um, and the three levels that I was uh, finding, and you can, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, this is just me doing um, some uh, quick research um, being uh, 
um, not an expert in this topic, is that I saw that there were what I would call the, um, and I've, I've just categorized it, these issues and made them my own names, of kind of the uh, boundary testers, which is kind of what adolescence I always think is about. Um, and those were the people who were, uh, you know, maybe they skip class or, you know, um, continue to be disruptive in class. Um, and then there were the people who were, um, uh, influenced by their environment. Uh, so I would say they were called the environmentally influenced folks. And what I mean by that, maybe they grew up in a, a rough neighborhood where it, um, just was uh, normal to have violence or see crime or drug dealing or um, or even uh, in some cases, maybe they experienced um, uh, uh, child abuse or something of that sort. And then uh, the third level that I seem to uh, come to, and I just made this kind of a larger category, or I would say the, the ones that would be, I guess, uh, mental health issues, um, because sometimes there are um, uh, youth that, you know, uh, are on a, on a different uh, level or scale that doesn't have anything to do with the environment or um, uh, testing testing boundaries, just like uh, adults as well. Just, you know, you may have a, a mental health issue. Um, and so those were the three uh, main parts that I was uh, finding. And I would say, I guess, um, uh, one of the things that started to concern me as I was looking and researching as well is that, uh, I guess, the harshness that was put on um, um, on youth. And so would you say that just uh, to start off with, because I, I was, um, as I was looking at this, that the U.S. is like... Uh, really hard on um, young people, or do you think that's not um, necessarily so? So in terms of, you know, the U.S. being tougher on, on youth compared to other countries, you know, I, w I would agree with this. And um, now there is some issues here due to a lack of, of record keeping, right? Because unfortunately, not every country um, throughout the world is able to provide accurate statistics about the number of youth that are incarcerated in our United States. But um, so worldwide, it's not presently known, but certain agencies have actually estimated that more than 1 million children are incarcerated throughout our world. But other agencies have found that the U.S. leads our industrial world in the number and percentage of children who are in detention and in residential facilities. And so this was from a 2019 United Nations report. So I would say that even though throughout the last 10 years or so, we have been incarcerating youth at fewer numbers and percentages than previous years, we are still far more doing this than other countries are. And that's just one thing in terms of incarceration. Um, one example I think to think about is that Typically in our United States, our juvenile court jurisdiction over youth, so basically depending on what age a youth is, will they be handled in the juvenile justice system or the criminal justice system? There's a great amount of variation across the country. So for some um, instances, some states do not have a lower limit. And what I mean by that is a youth of any age could be arrested and referred to our juvenile justice system. Or if a youth is 16 years old, maybe compared to 18, they can automatically be waived to our adult criminal justice system. So even though they are biologically at 16 still considered a youth, legally, they could be considered an adult. And that doesn't necessarily happen in other countries. Um, now there has been a this successful push to raise the age in our mm -hmm. juvenile court jurisdiction, I'm sure you've heard that in, in yes. some of your, your research. Um, mm -hmm. And they've been recently trying to implement some of this legislation. But what I think would be interesting is to follow some examples of other countries to actually include emerging adults. So individuals who are 18, 19, and 20 years old, to keep them under juvenile court jurisdiction as well. So I know, for example, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut, they've either raised the age to 20 or are looking to do so. And this is what's been going on in some other European countries. Um, Germany, the Netherlands, um, they apply juvenile sanctions, 
they put individuals in facilities and courts who are still 18 to 21 years old. So they're still understanding that there might be some adolescent behaviors that are going on, even when they are between the ages of 18 and 20. So I think that that's an example of, you know, what the U.S. is trying to do with trying to raise the age to 18. But other countries are noticing differences in children and adolescents compared to adults, even up to the age of 21. And so I think that's another way to count, to, you know, show that, you know, if we're keeping youth who are 18 and younger incarcerated, well, then of course we're going to have higher numbers than some of these other countries depending on what we legally consider who's a juvenile. Yes. I guess uh, the line that I was trying to, um, you know, aside from, of course, people that uh, are doing really horrendous things, but that's Mm -hmm. something else that I'll probably bring up a little bit later, is uh, I guess what are considered, um, this is what I was finding in in research, is that what where the line is of what are considered normal parts of adolescent development, um, uh, for, you know, independence, you know, that adolescents at the time are trying to fight for independence against their parents and authorities and things like that. Um, like, where is the line um, should be before it becomes like a criminalization? Um, like, where do we say that, okay, they're just being a, a kid? Um, or is it really a crime? And, and so that's the difficulty there, right? So, you know, research shows that, that most youth will outgrow their misbehavior without extensive treatment, right? So, so interventions technically to, should be, you know, short-term, keeping kids in their community, you know, minimally disruptive, to not have them start to go through the pipeline of the juvenile justice system. But, you know, in regards to your, your question, there's this interconnection between politics, the economy, you know, the social structure, and our justice system. So if we look back historically, many of the laws and statutes made by our juvenile justice system, you know, were made by local and state and national governments, but based on perceptions of what should be done for youth who misbehave. So it's one of the ways of thinking the government wanting to control youth versus Mm -hmm. rehabilitate them and treat them. Um, so, in other words, the way that the criminal justice system controls adults was starting to trickle down to youth who are engaging in what they were saying are illegal behaviors, even though we know that children are different from adults in numerous ways. So, you know, that's where I think we talk about um, different statutes, like what is a status offense versus what is a delinquent offense. And I'm not sure if that's kind of something we want to talk about differentiating it, because I think that might get to what you were talking about in terms of what constitutes an offense. Yes, that's actually um, one of the questions that I wanted to ask. I guess, can you explain, um, uh, I guess, the difference between those two types of offenses, between a status offense and a delinquent offense? Sure, sure. And again, this gets back to your question as well. It's like, what do we determine is something that needs to have correction act, corrective action? by our juvenile justice system. So um, status offenses in in our system, they are basically behaviors that youth have engaged in. It's when adults, though, if they engaged in that behavior, would not be arrested. So in other words, the behavior is only illegal because the person is a juvenile. So some examples could be um, drinking alcohol, running away from home, violating curfew, uh, truancy from school, and then incorrigibility at home. So depending on the state, now kind of backtrack a little bit, our juvenile justice system is not a, a federal system. Every single state has its own separate system with different statutes and laws and procedures. So depending on what state you're in, you may be referred to juvenile court for a status offense But in another state, you may be handled more within a child welfare or um, other different type of system. So some status offenses are handled in the juvenile court or they're considered um, children in need of services or families in need of services. And so some of these status offenses in the states don't even go into the juvenile court 
because they're not wanting to have youth become in contact with that system. But it all depends on where youth live. So some argue that youth who commit status offenses are pretty much engaging in typical youth and young adult behaviors, kind of like you were just saying when you were asking your question, right? Like many juveniles may, you know, experiment with drinking alcohol, run away from home, violating curfew, so on and so forth. But other behaviors, maybe such as chronically running away or missing school consistently, that could demonstrate that these youth may have underlying needs that could be addressed by our juvenile justice system through some type of community-based services. So there's that fine line if, you know, is one individual skipping school once a month? Do they need to be coming in contact with our juvenile court? Or are we seeing, for example, a girl who is consistently running away? Is there some underlying problem that, yes, that technically is a status offense, but it may be that this youth has specific risks and needs that we could try to address with intervention in our system. So there's definitely differences in terms of the, the severity and the, and the culmination of, of status offenses compared to our more um, delinquent or standard offenses that we would see in our criminal justice system. Yes. And like one of the things, especially for status uh, offenses, and, you know, I may be considered, I guess, maybe old fashioned if I say this, <laughs> is like, where are the parents? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, and, and so because I know these days it's it's uh, well, I guess I shouldn't maybe laugh at it. But, um, you know, people uh, uh, have a different mindset these days. But um, I, I think that, you know, parents do play a big part um, with their children and their behavior. Um, like I said, I guess I'm maybe old fashioned in how I think. Um, but I guess, uh, where I guess are the lines, like for instance, I'm just going to make up a scenario, but in the instance of the girl continuously running away, I guess, um, where in the system should they, you know, bring the, have a talk with the parents, perhaps, mm -hmm. you know, the parents are abusive or maybe they're not abusive. Mm -hmm. They're just the, the neglectful and they're just like, you know, do what you ever do, whatever you want to do, which there are parents like that. Um, and so, um, I guess, uh, is it really, I'm not saying that blame shouldn't like, uh, you know, the, the person actually taking, doing the thing should, you know, experience some of the blame, but mm -hmm. in the case of juveniles, I guess, are the parents just not to blame at all? Or where, where does mm -hmm. that fall? Where, I guess, where does that fall in, in the midst of all of this? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to sound like a broken record throughout this whole, our whole chatting session, because it's, I'm going to keep saying it varies from state to state, um, mm -hmm. because it depends on how each local juvenile justice system operates and how involved they want the parents to be. So in terms of going back to your example, if we have this girl who's consistently running away um, and maybe she's brought into um, a juvenile assessment center by, by law enforcement, there are things called risk and needs assessments that an intake officer or probation officer will administer. And what it was, it's a, it's a long questionnaire and interview about um, school-related factors, family situations, history of mental health, substance use, um, living accommodations, and they will try to contact the parent as well um, to kind of get a bit more information about what's going on in the family situation. Um, unfortunately, sometimes there are situations where a parent may say, I can't control my child, um, you know, if, I, if they come home, they're just going to run away again, and, you know, they'll try to do an individualized plan for that youth, or they may have the, the parent who is more um, involved and says, look, we are having some issues, um, maybe it's a type of just learning how to communicate more, some family type of therapy, and because the juvenile justice system was founded on um, the best interests of the child and more individualized rehabilitation, the system, therefore, can try to help form a plan of how to meet the needs and address the risks for that family as well. So that's kind of, you know, one example um, based on your, on your scenario. But I think, you know, in terms of what role parents play, sometimes I think we need to look at the larger picture. And so, for example, um, children are honestly, I believe, you know, innocent bystanders sometimes. 
and mm-hmm. even kind of victims to some of their parents' circumstances. You know, whether it's the individual behavior of the parents or, or larger societal issues. So for what I mean here is, you know, for families who live in poverty, unemployment, you know, residential instability, children can't, you know, escape from these natural criminogenic environments. You know, their childhoods are very different compared to their affluent peers. And we know that justice-involved youth have, uh, they share very similar characteristics. And some of those you already identified, right? Impoverished childhoods, abuse or neglect, trauma, um, family instability, limited employment opportunities. And so what happens is that many of these children are born into this situation that they can't actually control. You know, children of the poor, those with less educated parents, they don't have the resources necessarily to overcome their obstacles sometimes. And so it's difficult in terms of if we want to look at the individual behavior of the, of the youth and of the parents themselves or taking a step back and looking at larger and historical structural and economic inequalities that have turned into kind of this path of, of families that have been for generations in that type of system. Um, so, you know, parents, I don't think, can automatically be blamed for the behavior of their children, but sometimes I think there needs to be a, a lesser focus on what the youth did and the individual decisions of the families. And then kind of put a larger focus on our larger structural inequalities that have really kind of just translated to these long-stemming problems for impoverished families. So it's almost like thinking about the larger picture versus those individual decisions, if that makes sense. Because for, for one example, it could be, you know, there may be single parents who work multiple jobs and are unable to supervise youth during the day. And mm-hmm. so if a youth is getting in trouble during that day, it's not necessarily that the parent doesn't want to supervise them, but they're pulled in multiple directions because they still have to work and provide for the family. So if a youth is brought into our juvenile justice system, those risk assessment instruments, those types of interviews that they have with court actors can get more of the larger picture of what's really going on with the family and trying to help address some of those issues. I guess in when they start to see, hopefully, I know it doesn't happen in all cases, but if they start to see the larger picture um, with the example, let's say for the girl that she has, um, you know, maybe an abusive father and, you know, and the mother works all the time so she doesn't really see the abuse or she doesn't have a close enough relationship with her mom to tell her what's going on. Um, let's see, I guess um, in those cases then, uh, because she has already been doing these status offenses, um, I guess, are the status offenses usually overlooked or does she still then become part of the system? Um, uh, is that I, I, I haven't found like which which like I see that sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that again goes back to just the individualized nature of our system. They don't necessarily want to pigeonhole youth into, well, you have this factor going on in your life and you have this situation going on, so we're automatically going to remove you from the home and place you in a facility. You know, we, there's a there's a growing reform efforts about wanting to keep youth in a community. They want mm-hmm. to keep them in, in positive environments. And if that environment isn't necessarily so positive, they will try to go ahead and figure out, are there more maybe stable family members? potentially, uh, grandparents, aunts, uncles that, that a youth could, could spend some time with. Maybe there is a, a foster care or group type of home that a youth could be placed in for a certain amount of time while the parents are trying to, hopefully, if they're you know wanting to be invested in this, work on their situations as well. Because um, ideally, they don't want to separate families but sometimes, depending on the situation, removing a youth from their home may be a more positive outcome and, you know, transition for a child than keeping them in, in that, in that, um, in that home environment. And so it's difficult, you know, in researching and, and talking with youth because sometimes you don't want to say, oh, well, you were placed into a residential facility. Well, at the same time, that facility might 
have more stability and structure and opportunities than a youth who is currently in their own home right now. So I guess you would say that the, the, um, the biggest thing that puts um, youth at risk for getting into like a juvenile detention center would be the, the continuous instability of uh, like home and then the continuous, uh, you know, happening of uh, offenses or are there other things that uh, put them at offense for ending up in like a juvenile detention centers? Yeah, so there's there you you nailed it on the head in, in a couple of the instances, and I can kind of provide a few more examples. Um, so let me I think I'm just going to you know, backtrack real quick to kind of when we talk about juvenile detention centers is mm-hmm. people think that there's many different ways that youth can end up in a detention center. There's multiple options. So detention is really this broad term that mm-hmm. is used whenever uh, housing a youth in a facility when they're under custody of our juvenile justice system. So when a youth is first referred to the juvenile court, they can be placed in detention when they're initially arrested and they're awaiting their initial appearance. So basically the court's deciding, we need to ensure you're going to come to your first hearing. You need to stay in detention. All right. So that's what we talk about in terms of pre-trial or pre-adjudication detention. And then youth can also be held in detention after this initial hearing throughout the whole court process before, you know, their final case outcome or disposition is determined. And so that way they're ensuring they're still going to continue to be um, coming to all their hearings and meetings. But then also youth can be held in detention when they're awaiting to be placed in a long-term residential facility because detention is supposed to be short-term care only um, while, for example, they're waiting their hearings or they're waiting to be placed in a longer-term residential facility. So we can use the term, you know, juvenile detention or residential facilities interchangeably, um, mm-hmm. but those facilities are technically longer-term placements. Um, so kind of in terms of you know, what, what you were asking is like, what puts the youth at risk for ending up in a, in a detention center? Concerning that pre-trial or pre-adjudication detention, so when youth are initially arrested and brought in, um, if they, they can be detained if they allegedly committed a specific offense that is serious enough by the juvenile justice system that they believe they should not go home prior to that initial hearing. We're talking about um, offenses where a youth allegedly had a firearm, um, a violent offense, um, certain situations like that where they may be at risk to hurt other people or hurt themselves or not come to their next court date. And so there might be some statutes in place where, well, if you're being charged with aggravated assault, you're going to be detained moving forward because you, in terms of uh, public safety issues. We should mm-hmm. keep you there. Um, another situation, unfortunately, that happens, and this goes back to our parenting conversation, um, a youth can end up in detention if there's not a parent or guardian who can come and pick them up. And huh. so this is an example of an unintended consequence of our detention process because let's say a child is arrested, you know, brought to an assessment center, they're considered a low risk to recidivate. Maybe it was a trespassing situation where, you know, they technically don't need to be held in detention because they believe that they'll come back, you know, for their hearings. They believe that they're not at risk at all. But then what if the parent doesn't have a working cell phone or a house phone or they're working at a job where they're unable to pick up their child? As a result, that kid has to stay in detention overnight. Mm. Yeah, so, so I didn't even think about those, those, uh, you know, non, they're just a, you know, just a regular kid, but their parents, you know, yep. can't do it, can't do it or something. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, and then getting back to, you know, what you were saying about what, what puts them at risk, the, that risk assessment instrument, they go ahead and give that to youth um, basically for the purpose of detention. So again, like I mentioned, if there's an alleged offense, violence, maybe a situation of domestic violence, using a firearm. If they have multiple past referrals to the juvenile justice system, they're not brand new um, to, to the system itself. If they have a history of escaping, 
into many prior facilities or if they haven't attended previous court dates. Um, let's see, if they are currently on probation um, or if they have a history or, or indicators of any abuse in the family. These are some of the indicators that are going to say, all right, we're not going to have you go home for your court proceedings. We want to keep you in detention um, for, for those various reasons. Now, one of the things I was also reading, and I don't know if it was just uh, an, um, an off-tangent kind of thing that only um, some people are concerned about, I guess, are the juvenile detention centers themselves. Um, yeah. Once um, uh, children or um, adolescents are in these centers, um, you know, a lot of people have concerns about the centers themselves that sometimes, you know, um, there's, I guess, multiple angles. There's, of course, the the thing that happens just because they are adolescents influenced by other mm -hmm. adolescents and maybe, you know, they get uh, worse ideas <laughs> yeah. or um, so there's that. Um, but then uh, there's also the thing that people are concerned about the treatment of these adolescents um, once they are in centers that they're already um, being uh, thought of as uh, criminals or um, sometimes subject subjected to additional abuses. I don't know if that is a, a, a like a high concern or if it's just um, something that is uh, a concern for for just a some, I guess. Yeah, it, it is a concern. I wouldn't necessarily say it's countrywide a, a concern, but, mm -hmm. you know, a youth can, can be affected by detention even in a short term. And so, for example, you know, placing a youth in detention naturally means that they're being removed from their home and their family environment. So, you know, they're missing days in school. They're not able to attend work if they have a job any sports activities or other responsibilities. So while school, counseling, treatment, and rehabilitation, those are available to youth who are in the longer-term residential facilities. But as I said before, detention centers are meant to be short-term housing. And so now specifically, you know, I'm, I'm more familiar with our juvenile justice system here in Florida. Those youth in detention do receive education, mental health, substance use and healthcare while in detention. But at the same time, you know, once you're removing the youth from their home, they're going to be missing out on, on their natural, you know, and daily routine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many justice involved youth, they, they have a history of trauma as, as we talked about briefly before. So that actually being held in detention exacerbates the feelings of being abandoned if they're placed into a facility that's not in their typical home environment. Um, and so those are some of just like in terms of the, the routines, but in terms of the conditions of our, of our detention centers, you know, you're kind of spot on about what, what unfortunately negative situation should happen, which is why I think, you know, detention centers should be held for youth in, in certain circumstances. So, you know, in talking historically about in the 1990s, um, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, it's OJJDP, that's kind of our main, um, you know, funding source and, and national information about juvenile justice. They reported that there were substantial issues with juvenile detention centers. I mean, we're talking about inadequate health care, lack of treatment services, you know, an excessive use of solitary confinement and even the use of physical restraints. Mm. But throughout the last two decades, there have been major reform efforts around trying to um, reduce these instances. And for, for one thing, besides, you know, going ahead and um, improving these conditions, we're seeing a lot of these facilities actually closing in the last 10 years which naturally would go ahead and reduce the instances of negative situations happening in detention because we're finding that we're able to keep youth in their communities without seeing this increase in crime. So it's almost like a, a, a two-tailed effort where for those detention centers that are still opening, there has been a, a large focus on reforming the conditions of detention, you know, decreasing the length of for kids who are in there, and then not even placing youth in detention unless they're considered, a, you know, a, a flight risk or, um, you know, a, a 
an issue with public safety. You know, some states have even said, unless, you know, if there's a minor offense or a nonviolent offense, you will be staying home for your disposition. We will not be, you know, placing you in any facility. Yes. And so, um, uh, it's, I, well, I'm glad to hear that um, now that there's a, a, a greater focus on like uh, mental health and, um, you know, redirecting in youth. Um, mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the things and just kind of uh, transitioning to like a, a different angle of this topic, um, as you know, and <laughs> everybody saw in 2020, um, that uh, uh, race became um, uh, another um, hot and heated uh, topic that um, uh, continues to um, be one of the things that America um, uh, deals with on a uh, daily basis. And mm-hmm. so, uh, of course, one of the big things that's always uh, brought up is, um, and we saw obviously with the, uh, George Floyd, I know obviously he wasn't a juvenile, um, mm-hmm. but um, just as uh, um, uh, a lot of um, uh, African-Americans and, um, and minorities um, in general are looked at um, as uh, uh, sometimes uh, criminals in um, society. Mm-hmm. Um, how does uh, race, I guess, play um, for juveniles? We've, we've seen, obviously, all these killings. Um, so it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I have lost count. Um, and just to be honest, I've become, mm-hmm. I unfortunately, I guess it's part of, uh, this is sad to say, um, but I guess as part of um, being an American, you become uh, desensitized um, to all of these, mm-hmm. um, you know, killings. I don't even know anymore um, uh, about uh, each of the scenarios because I've gotten to a point that I'm just like, oh, OK, you know, everybody's upset for a week um, and then we move on and then another one happens. And, um, you know, I, I, I almost don't feel like there's a there's an end to it. Um, so I guess uh, why would you I, I guess historically we know the background of, um, you know, race in America. But mm-hmm. why is it hitting our youth so hard? Because mm-hmm. that's a lot of the people who have gotten shot and all of this other stuff. And, and it's something like you just said, you know, that the issue of race has been an inception within, since America began. And, and it's the same thing with the juvenile justice system. Unfortunately, um, the presence of racial disparities has been evident in the system since since its inception. Um, in fact, racial disparities are, are one of the first things that stands out in what the juvenile justice system looks like. Um, and for example, it's, it's you know the Sentencing Project um, is a, a foundation and organization that focuses a lot on disparities in our in our juvenile court. And are finding just recently, you know, black youth are four times more likely than their white peers to be held in these juvenile facilities. Um, and even though we're starting to see fewer youth being held in facilities, this, this race gap is starting to get a bit smaller, but it's still larger, you know, um, still evidently pr- pretty large. So, you know, our juvenile court statistics are, are a little delayed compared to some others because, again, since it is a state-run system, it takes a while to have all of that data accumulated and, and put into national statistics. But we're seeing, you know, the the white placement rate, so white youth who are placed in these facilities are about 114, you know, per 100,000. Mm-hmm. And that's 114 for whites, but we're seeing 315. I'm sorry, the youth placement rate was 114. There we go. The black placement rate was 315 per 100,000. And then whites were 72 per 100,000, right? Exactly. Wow. Right, and it's it's one of those, like, I I, I want to answer your question. I want to talk about that, definitely. But sometimes I just was like, sometimes we need just some statistics in the beginning to show, like, okay, this is actually happening now. Um, and even though we are seeing some decrease in disparities, those are some still pretty, you know, large differences, right? Yes. There. Um, I didn't, I didn't even realize, I knew it was large. I didn't realize it was like that. It's a, it's almost, uh, I don't, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's, you'd have to, you know, if you were just an, uh, uh, you'd have to say, okay, there's um, either, 
um, a certain race is so, so bad, right? <laughs> or, or something, oh, or there's, there's gotta be, there has to be something, something not right because that, that's yeah. an extreme, you know, yeah. I could see if it was like a hundred to maybe 300, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's still a lot. Um, but we didn't even get into the same triple digits. Right. Exactly. 315 to compare to 72 or 72. Right. And, and it's honestly, this is something new also with COVID happening. You know, we're starting mm-hmm. to see that white kids are being released from detention centers at a higher rate than their black peers. Um, and kids of color have already been detained for longer periods of time prior to the COVID pandemic. And so this gets, this gets back to your question about like, what is going on? Like, what are some explanations? You know, why are we, why are we seeing this? Um, and it, it goes back to, I think it's, it's, it's difficult. This is such a complex question. And it's one of those where, you know, I've been, I've been researching for now 11 years about these disparities and, and people ask me and they want that like one sentence answer, right? Like, why mm-hmm. do we have these racial and ethnic differences? And it's so complex and so multifaceted. Um, but to kind of help a little bit, there's, there's these two broad explanations that people talk about, about why we see these disparities and how they're, um, you know, pretty increasing or decreasing, you know, throughout the years. But one of them is what we call our differential offending explanation. And, and what that really means is that, that the argument that minority youth engage in more serious and more frequent offending more so than whites. All right. So they're engaging in more serious crimes and they're engaging in that more often than whites. Um, so because of that, more serious crimes, uh, a higher number of prior referrals. Well, then that's why you're going to see more minorities compared to whites in our system. So, you know, that's one, one viewpoint. Um, the second viewpoint is what has been probably been, we've been seeing more, um, in the last few years, especially getting back to your comment is this differential selection or selection bias argument. And this gets at the um, explanation that juvenile court actors, so police officers, judges, probation officers, they have these implicit biases, perceptions, and beliefs about Black and Hispanic youth compared to white. And because of these negative stereotypes and biases, and attributions for why they may be engaging in crime compared to whites. That's why we're seeing more black youth being arrested, being formally charged, um, being adjudicated. We don't say guilty in our juvenile justice system, you know, to, to decrease stigmatization and labeling. We say mm-hmm. adjudicated. Um, and then instead of a sentence, they receive a disposition. So the other argument says that, well, based on these selective biases, this is why we're seeing um, these racial and ethnic disparities. But even I, I would say that even at the be- before both of those, I think also it gets back to, and I talked about it briefly, you know, problems with poverty, unemployment, lack of opportunity, which occur across all races, but mm-hmm. tend to be more detrimental for minorities compared to whites. So, if youth are, minority youth are coming from communities that have um, fewer alternatives to institutionalization, like they don't have the resources in their communities, they may have them be placed in institutions because they don't have the social services, the educational resources, mentorship in those communities. So it's almost like, well, we're not going to put them back in their communities because they don't have the services there. They need to be in institutions. Um, a lack of funding, like mental health treatment, extracurricular activities, those are less, you know, judges in the juvenile justice system are less likely to release youth who have committed such offenses but don't have access to those resources. And what are we seeing? We're seeing that more youth are coming from these communities of being a racial and ethnic minority. So... It's, it's very convoluted because let's think about this. I, I started with the whole, you know, um, differential offending explanation. If they're mm-hmm. engaging in more serious and more serious offenses, is that because they live in impoverished communities 
with a lack of opportunity. They see their friends in gangs. They have the increased presence of firearms. It's easier to, you know, engage in illicit activity in those communities. And then is that why they're engaging in more frequent offending? Let's look at the selection bias example. If there's the perceptions that, ooh, we have certain hot spots where crime is more likely to occur, and these hot spots tend to be more in inner city and minority communities, well, then the police may be going into those communities to then have more um, over surveillance in that. Yes, so, actually, that was something I was going to ask. So, yes, <laughs> I was wondering yeah, if they go into those communities a little bit more, because I've heard people talk about that um, as well as that because they know, like, um, you know, I have obviously never been a, a police officer or mm-hmm. anything, um, but I know, obviously, that, you know, uh, uh, you're supposed to be as a police officer taking, you know, guarding the public, taking care mm-hmm. of things. And so you, you know, you go to the places where, you know, that there would be um, mm-hmm. problems, but mm-hmm. even, uh, and then you are on the lookout uh, for problems. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, so uh, that's a factor, I guess, that is always like uh, brought up um, by a lot of people is that it's because people are out there looking for a problem. So if you look for a problem, you'll find one. Well, it could be that. And also let's think about the fact that maybe certain offenses are able to be, you know, done in closed doors. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, there is drug use that occurs throughout lower, middle, and upper classes. Drug use occurs uh, throughout all economic status. But certain drugs potentially could be exchanged behind closed doors, which people are not, you know, you know, it's a more private type of situation. I'm just giving one example. Versus there be other situations with drugs that are more in the public eye. So naturally, if certain offenses are occurring more often in the general public, it's easier for law enforcement naturally, whether they're looking for or not, to see certain things happening in certain areas compared to others. Mm-hmm. That's, so that's that's, that's mm-hmm. one of the difficulties in there. And so, you know, we have those two main explanations for why we see minority minority overrepresentation. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think it's a larger societal issue that both of those explanations stem from issues of, of poverty and lack of opportunity and, uh, you know, difficulties with school and education, mental health services, and so on and so forth that have been going on for generations. Um, you know, even one more example, you know, if we think about the pandemic, um, like I mentioned, fewer youth are being detained during the pandemic, but when they are, it is a greater proportion are being detained for serious offenses, which should be happening. You know, we're talking Mm -hmm. about, especially with a weapon, violence. um, And then what they are seeing is that there is a higher number of minority teenagers who are more likely to be detained and are being detained for those offenses. So, it's, it's unfortunate. I wish I would have that one sentence answer and I'm sitting here talking your ear off for five minutes on the, on the one, on the one question because it's so multifaceted. <laughs> No, I know. I know it's a it's a it's a huge um, problem. One of the things too, you know, the thing is uh, when you you mentioned that you know they would send over non minority youth or, or white youth because they have the resources within their community, mm-hmm. and then for uh, minorities not having those resources um, in the community, it puts them in I guess a con- continuous cycle. And so somebody that you know uh, stole the candy bar, um, you know, now uh, because they've stayed into the system is now, you know, into murders or something like that um, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of the continuous uh, exposure and, you know, what it does to you mentally. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess um, uh, with, I guess, is there, um, I want to say, is there any hope almost, but <laughs> is there, is there, is there hope that I guess that, um, that uh, this can actually be corrected? So I, I do think, I do think that there's hope. Um, I think one of the things we need to think about is, again, it's multifaceted, but in a way to talk about this is in our larger 
larger ways of thinking about it. I, I think we need more support from the general public. And I can talk about this with, with different aspects. But the first one is, is you know, support from the general public um, about specific policy reforms. And what I mean by this is just like what you were saying with the kid in the candy bar example, you know, reinvest in communities so youth can be kept in their homes and that they're not placed outside and into, you know, confinement because of their behavior. Um, I think it's something about, you know, the general public, I think, could be more educated about the characteristics of kids who come into contact with the system. You know, there's a history of abuse and neglect or family family situations or um, mental health problems. Um, and recognizing that they're not these super predators, they're not these rational decision makers who choose to engage in these behaviors, but a lot of them have just risks and needs that can be addressed with treatment and services. If, and even better, if those services can be done in the community. Um, I honestly believe that we need a society that's, that's committed to child welfare. Um, enacting laws to kind of alleviate these root causes of inequality and poverty um, and make people realize that we do really need to invest in youth and, you know, not to sound cliche, but they're necessary for, for the future, future of, of survival. And so, you know, it's, we have decades of economic inequality, concentrated poverty, you know, race, racial isolation, lack of opportunity. And unless we can see some changes and have the public realize that this is what's going on um, and want to invest in it, that's what I think is going. you're going to start to see the trickle-down effect of, of fewer youth in our system. But also, you know, we're actually at our lowest juvenile crime rate in the last 40 years across a nation. But the media and the general public, you know, they see – these situations in, in, on the news and on social media about juveniles engaging in these heinous behaviors, that's a very small proportion of all of the juvenile offending. And I think it's almost where we need to focus on the positives and the success stories of youth who became involved in our juvenile justice system versus some of those small not, not small in terms of impact, because um, there are some, some heinous offenses, but the mm-hmm. small number of youth who are, are making the news. It's almost like they're focusing more on the negative and then the positive. I think if, if the media and people were to see some of the positives of our juvenile justice system in terms of rehabilitation and focusing on the risks and needs of youth and realizing the majority of, of offending is, you know, is will decrease as youth get older, we can get more kind of support from the public and from legislators that, that change can be made. But it's going to be, it, it's many people say that's not, that's not possible. <laughs> I, I, well, I think it is possible. Well, I think it's possible only because of, you know, the media obviously has an extremely strong influence, as we have seen yeah. in this yeah. country, as mm-hmm. now the country itself is, you know, on almost every issue, um, you know, uh, people are taking sides. So um, and that's uh, really because of the things that they have uh, seen either on television through social media. I think uh, right now uh, media has the most influence uh that I have almost ever seen because people live and die by their media almost these days. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yes, I actually did read the um, statistic that you were talking about that, um, you know, uh, actually um, rates have gone down because I was mm-hmm. like, I was double checking because I was like, is that right? Because, right. you know, the way the way that the, the media has you thinking, I was thinking that, you know, youths are out of control. We got to right. maybe start <laughs> tasering them. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trying to find more like, well, that's what we see in the media. And don't get me wrong, especially in this last yeah. year, we have been specific cities that mm-hmm. have had some increase in, in, in violence and in homicide, um, including with juveniles, but the, the general national rates over the last 40 years have been steadily decreasing. But just like you said, you I, I have debates with my family about this, and I, I don't ever like to, to pull, you know, the, 
hey, you know, I have a degree in criminology. I, I teach statistics to my undergraduates. I don't like to, to pull that card, but I'm like, this is what the data show, mm-hmm. not what you're necessarily seeing, you know, on the nightly news. Yeah, no, because the nightly news would have you believing that we are, that we are, uh, you know, spiraling out of control, and maybe we we have to rethink. Because you know, uh, you know, I have a, a daughter, and I was like, you know, I, I was thinking that I got to have some serious talks. You can't do this, this, this. Right. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, that's what they have you believing. Um, I guess now one of the things because things have been decreasing um, because of the pandemic. I guess I'll say we are still in the pandemic as we have the mm-hmm. Delta virus. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> rising. Yeah. Um, and so, um, uh, so young people were being released um, because, of course, we don't want to continue spreading uh, the virus. Um, yep. But do you believe also um, because of on a on a uh, from the mental health aspect um, that this uh, being locked up and not being able to, you know, socialize as they usually mm-hmm. do as kids? Do you think that in the future that because of this pandemic, it will lead to problems among our youth? But I, I think this is a, a two, two-pronged question here because, you know, research has shown that, you know, any time spent in detention in terms of being away from your family and your friends and your, and your routine, you know, can be negatively impact youth. You know, especially with COVID when youth have been still being detained, you know, in-person visits were, were completely halted. There was video conferencing only. And so the release of youth into the community is, is positive with this pandemic because they were still together, you know, with their family. But I think if we just, if we look about this in terms of the pandemic and, and mental health and potential increased problems for youth, um, I think it's possible, but I think it's also something that all of us, regardless of age, are, are having to deal with right now. Um, you know, I think Many of us need structure, routine, stability in our lives. And the pandemic turned that upside down for all of us, right? And so even mm-hmm. though there was that decrease in, in referrals to the juvenile justice system, you know, and this could also attribute because youth were not going to school, um, you know, they had the closing of recreational areas, social distancing mandates. But just like you said, we're starting to see that increase in mental health needs, increases in uh, family conflict, decreases in educational attainment in this past year. So these can have short and long-term effects for, for not only youth, but, but all of us. And so while I believe it's a positive note in the direction that we were able to detain less youth and not see this increase, in, in juvenile crime, um, I think it's a way to look at the larger picture that all of us have been kind of going through some things throughout throughout this past year. And so it's cog- we need to all be cognizant of our own mental health needs and then definitely for children as well, because sometimes they may not be realizing what they're feeling unless That's you true. start to notice some things of, of acting out. So I think it's a, it's a time for all of us to be more aware about how we're feeling and therefore how our children and our family is feeling. Um, Because again, the positive note is we're having less youth detained. We're having fewer youth um, referred to the juvenile justice system, but this pandemic has impacted all of us. So I think we definitely may see some long and short, uh, short and long-term effects. Um, And me and some colleagues right now are are beginning to take a look at some of those impacts within, um, you know, Florida's juvenile justice system, where we're, we're working on a proposal right now to try to look at the different uh, risks and needs that youth um, are having, not only, you know, pre and post uh, COVID, even though, like you just said, we are still in our COVID world, um, but then also how this changes over time with having more school resource officers in schools. So we're, we're looking at kind of these natural experiments of when certain things have happened to youth throughout these last five years, what are the characteristics of them? Like, what are we starting to see changes in with them? Mm-hmm. I guess um, to kind of um, conclude a little bit with all of this, mm-hmm. because there's there's so many there's so many different. Um, uh, uh, 
um, I guess, layers um, to yeah. uh, the juvenile justice system mm -hmm. and uh, especially um, what's what you specialize in with uh, looking at uh, racial disparity, um, which uh, is a, a major social issue mm -hmm. um, that I think will uh, take um, definitely um, uh, time to uh, to get through. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> how can I guess um, for the everyday person? Mm -hmm. um, I guess, how can they help um, either change the system or um, change their, their, their mind or um, how can they make a difference in this area? So I, I think, you know, it's such a great question. And some of the parts, um, you know, I highlighted real briefly about, you know, just learning more about youth in general and, you know, supporting, you know, specific policy reforms um, and really just educating your, um, ourself a little bit. So, for example, um, I think we need to show the general public that there needs to be a smaller emphasis on the youth individual behavior and cultural factors, and then focus more on structural inequality to explain, you know, differences in people's lifestyles and circumstances. Um, I think that you know, the general public and people can, can help. You know, I think education is the first step. Just learning more about the fact that um, children are not necessarily capable of making sound-minded and rational decisions. You know, children are different than adults. Um, their decisions are often due to the environment that they live in. And, you know, what we talked about earlier about, you know, potentially they only know based on what environment they're in and what they see in terms of what their family situation is. You know, adolescence is a time with rashness, um, irrationality, not rashness, sorry, um, <laughs> the inability to assess consequences. Um, emotions influence youth judgment so much more than adults. They're emotionally charged, which, you know, compromises their decision-making ability. They're more heavily influenced by those reward centers in their brain. And so I think it's time for the entire country to understand these differences. And so whether it's just not, you know, understanding children are different, um, the use of if there's potential volunteering or mentoring services, specifically in underserved communities, um, you know, there are numerous different types of uh, community-based programs that would love volunteers um, in terms of checking out your local areas, even just, you know, small Google searches about the juvenile justice system and contacting uh, actor, you know, probation officers or court actors there about, you know, are there opportunities to, you know, do after school activities with youth or if there's youth in detention centers. Um, so here in Hillsborough County there a few years ago, we had yoga instructors going into the detention centers to just have, you know, youth take yoga classes. Because it's just a way to help build connections and mentorships and realize, again, that these kids are kids and they have risks and they have needs and they're not necessarily this separate label of juvenile offenders. Like, we don't like that label. They're, they're, they're youth who are involved in our juvenile justice system. Um, and they, they look a, a very similar to, to other children who, who are not involved. And so I think what people can do is help learn and educate themselves to decrease that stigma. And, and like you mentioned, you know, be critical with the media, you know, just don't take a story for what it is at face value, but do your research and, and realize that, you know, our juvenile justice system is making reform efforts. They're focusing on rehabilitation. They don't want to see youth coming in through the door over and over again. So, um, but they need the resources to do that. And so I think that's more at the local and state uh, government level to, to invest in our children here. Yes, I agree. I definitely, I 110% agree in uh, mentorship. I think it makes a, mm -hmm. a, a big difference in a child's life. Um, just uh, having somebody to pay attention. Um, 
I forget. I was reading some uh, statistic about that of like, you know, um, how much a, a child needs attention. And, you know, you think about it more of when they are in the, uh, of course, the baby stage, because, you know, you feel that you have to do obviously feed them and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, as they uh, but they also say I was reading in the statistic that actually when they get to those teen years, those years are actually the more critical years to be kind of like that uh, on your toes with them. Um, yeah. Because this is those are the years that they are, um, you know, coming into who they are going to be or start to be um, mm-hmm. as adults. Um, so um, and and, you know, and from our perspective as a society and things like that, um, especially American society, those are the years that we're trying to push them away from us. Right. <laughs> but they're, right. But exactly. Yes. They're the ones mm-hmm. where, you know, that's when they're starting to form their identity and they mm-hmm. need be able to be transparent and communicate with parents and and adults and all of that but like you said you want them to like fly you know fly the nest and and learn on their own but sometimes we still we still need that communication and that cohesiveness with them you're right a hundred percent yeah so um yeah so definitely as they as they enter the teen years parents pull your kids closer (laughs) yeah exactly exactly well, um, uh, well, thank you, Dr. Peck, for your um, time and insight. This has uh, definitely um, enlightened me and uh, taught me some new things about um, juvenile justice that I did not um, uh, see before. Um, one of the things, you know, I, 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 I wasn't even um, thinking about just, uh, you know, the, the parents that are just out there busy working and, you know, their kids end up in this situation, mm-hmm. not because they've done anything wrong, um, just because, you know, they're busy parents. Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, for everyone, it affects us in, uh, so many different ways. Even if, uh, your child doesn't end up in this situation, they may have a friend that ends up in a, yeah. a situation like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is extremely important that we all really look at it um so thank you again and so if you have a passion for an unserved community a social justice problem or simply want to change minds contact project good work at projectgood.work to start your project of change today thank you to our listeners and thanks for tuning in to project good where we're focused on what matters